I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and social impact. Today's show is going to be very, very different, a different approach to purpose. Yes, we're going to talk about organizational purpose for Merck and company, as well as a bit about Organon. But most of the conversation is about the survival of an extraordinary trauma victim, Geraldine Ritter, who survived one of the worst Amtrak derailments in the railroad's history. From the derailment, Geraldine was not expected to live. She was crushed in the crash, which killed eight and injured hundreds. Her abdominal, chest, pelvic, and orthopedic injuries were so overwhelming and she was not expected to live. In a split second, she went from being a devoted mother of three boys and a globe-trotting senior executive to being a patient on a ventilator with a very, very uncertain future. Geraldine's doctors indeed said they used the word miraculous. In fact, they called her a unicorn because of her so many injuries and the fact that she survived. She recently wrote a book called Bone by Bone. It's an amazing story of her tragic trauma and how she regained her health and all of the challenges along the way. She wrote it, one, to help her heal, but more so because during her two and a half years um, outside of work, where she was going through her recuperation, she could not find a book that truly helped explain trauma, its impacts, both, both physical and mental, and how it also impacts the family and friends and entire community. Join me for this riveting story because there's so much to learn about personal resilience. And then I asked Geraldine how she applied that resilience in her work. We'll also learn how rediscovering her personal purpose has made her a better leader at Organon. In the book, Geraldine has this wonderful little vignette near the end. And she talks about her son, her 10-year-old son, Stephen, who the tragedy hit him so hard. But he loved his mother so dearly that as she was recuperating, he left a message in their kitchen. And it was a bowl of nacho cheese Doritos. And he had a nice, in fact, not nice, a beautiful message on the side of the bowl saying, life is a gift. So let's get started. First, I just want to welcome this absolutely, I'm going to call you a superwoman with a gigantic heart, Geraldine Ritter, to the show. Thank you so much, Carol. It's really an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor for me to meet you. Now, this is going to be a very different show because we're going to talk about Geraldine. She has been in the field of ESG, sustainability, purpose, and many of you who follow best practice will know that she created, she was the leader of Merck for Mothers when she was at Merck. And we're going to get into that in a bit. And then she had an extraordinarily tragic, but she survived, accident on Amtrak 188 on May 12th. 
in 2015. And I remember that story so well. And I was following you and hoping that you would survive. And she did. But she just wrote this book, Bone by Bone, which I suggest to all of our listeners. You must go out and get this book. It's beautifully written. And I'm going to embarrass you, Geraldine. You know, when she was going through her tremendous trauma, and we'll, we'll get into that in our discussion, she was looking for guidance. She was looking for someone. She, she's such a professional that she likes to know where things are going, and then she wants to make them better. And she couldn't find that. So she ultimately had to write the book. It's an amazing read. Uh, so I suggest to anybody who wants to learn about um, God and grace and gratitude and even grief uh, going through a tremendous tragedy, but coming out the other end. So, Geraldine, just tell us a little bit about your background. Um, and also, she's a lawyer by training. <laughs> I, I am. I'm from uh, Houston, Texas, originally. And I always thought I was going to be an ambassador. I was fascinated by public policy, by foreign policy, I wanted to travel the world and coming out of college, you know, that was my goal. I uh, did a master's degree and decided I also needed a law degree. So I combined those two and uh, headed to Washington, D.C. That's where I started my career. And by the way, she went to Stanford for a law degree, so she, <laughs> she she's no piker. I mean, she she's just amazing. And and you have this intuitive desire for scale and impact. Where did that come from? If you want to have an impact, if you want to change things to help people, I gravitated toward policy because that's the most impactful way to do it. You can do it project by project, and I really respect folks that do it that way. But sometimes if you can work at the system level, if we can change the rules, that can ultimately, I think, impact the greatest number of folks. And I think the world is better because you have that point of view and you have that incredible tensionality. Talk about your role at Merck. And I specifically, I I know years ago, I would talk about Merck for Mothers constantly because it was an extraordinarily smart and impactful story. So for our listeners who don't know about Merck for Mothers, if you could share what it is, how you scaled it, how you sold it in a bit. You know, I got what I thought and still think is one of the most incredible privileges you could have as a professional, which was the CEO coming to me at the time I was head of uh, Merck's public policy program. I was also president of its foundation and responsible for corporate responsibility at ESG. And Merck had just merged with another large pharmaceutical company, Sharing Plow. And the CEO, Dick Clark, came to me and he said, what is the program for this new generation of employees, for this new company that is has so much more of a global reach, how how are we going to energize our employees and 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 you know help me design something that really epitomizes what this company is about? And that was the only guidance. <laughs> the only not we're going to do it in the area of maternal mortality. Not it's going to be related to women's health. It was go figure out what we should do. And that was just an incredible opportunity. There was no dollar figures mentioned, no regions. We had total flexibility 
to think it through. You had a blank canvas. <laughs> we did. It was fantastic with a company with that scale, size, resources, intelligence, research arm. You know, it was really fantastic. The first thing we did was we said, you know what? It is not a new philanthropic program. That is not what we're going to do. We're going to focus on how the company does business. We're going to focus on, you know, the principles, how we decide what we research, how we package our products, you know, our pricing policies, those sorts of things. And so we spent a good year doing that. And we came up with a big set of principles. This was really in the early days of, of ESG reporting, et cetera. And that was really important work. But, you know, it doesn't always galvanize people the way it should, perhaps. <laughs> so we came full circle and said, you know what? We do need a new program. It was almost the, the star at the top of the tree. <laughs> Not for the sake of having a new program, but because it would symbolize, it, it would reflect this company and all of those values and principles that we had built. Built. So we looked at the Millennium Development Goals. We looked at, you know, public health data on all sorts of different chronic conditions, diabetes, cancer. And what really struck us was, number one, how many areas in women's health were suffering from lack of funding, lack of research, lack of focus. 50% of the world. This is not a niche population. Right, right. <laughs> and the, the, the UN goal that was the furthest behind at that time was the goal to reduce maternal mortality, to reduce maternal death. And, you know, we said, we have some of the tools. There's scope for innovation, but we don't need to invent some brand new magic drug. We need to help people access the techniques and the products that are already there. So we said, this is something we can do. This is something we should do. And I give huge credit to Merck's CEO at that time, Ken Frazier. We went into his office. We pitched this program. I came up with the biggest number I could think of. <laughs> And, and, and what was the number then? Uh, that we would contribute $500 million over 10 years. Perfect. And he said? And he said yes. And by the end of that meeting, he was standing up across the, the, the table, shaking his finger at me and telling me why we had to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Great. He had me. And he said, you know, John, one of the things I love about this is that we have no idea how we're going to do it. <laughs> He said, we're That's going great. to learn. And, and he saw the strategic value of the company. Yes, it's not just engaging employees. And we know we can help. But we're also going to learn as an organization how to meet a different kind of customer in different countries where we didn't have a lot of experience, which was fantastic. He knew it would open a lot of doors. And what year was that when you went in to, t to explain this? That was 2011. And by that fall, he had the opportunity to stand up at the United Nations with Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and announce the program. That's fantastic. Uh, it's one of the highlights of my career. 
it's it's yeah, but I know that in your current role you're going to do that again. So just talk a little bit about the outcomes because I think that many years later, um, before your accident, you had some incredible outcomes and the amount of lives you're saving and lives you're touching. The program has been successful beyond our wildest dreams, and I really credit the incredible team that came after me, you know, worked with me, and has led that project for over 10 years now. So I I no longer work at Mark, but I was so thrilled and pleased that they recommitted to the program after the 10 years had elapsed. Uh, That was just this year because of the recognition that it is so important and that there are so many women that we are helping in lots of different ways, you know, through a new compound and and clinical trials that we uh, collaborated with the World Health Organization on, through our research partnerships in dozens of countries around the world, including the United States. I mean, we know tragically that the rate of maternal mortality in the U.S. is horrible. Or, Absolutely. I, will, I want to talk to you that offline, but I love you just wrote an article, which was, here's the headline and we're going to put in your show notes, which is why you don't need a dedicated ESG strategy. Instead, incorporate ESG into your long-term business planning. So um, you knew that many years ago. Let's now fast forward. So unfortunately, let's talk about May 12th. Um, so here you have this incredibly accomplished woman. You're down in what it was a DC giving, yeah. giving some speech. Get, you know, I love that. So just talk about the day a bit so we can just for our listeners um, share this traumatic shift in your life. The thing that always strikes me is just how ordinary it was. I had taken that train hundreds of times, it was so regular that I would wake up early, take the train to D.C., do a day of meetings, and be back home in New Jersey by the evening. And I'd gone down. I was attending a a meeting of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, a nonprofit that advocates to support the U.S. humanitarian programs around the world. I got back on the train. I had to get off in Philadelphia. I was speaking on a panel for my my, uh, alma mater, Duke University, on women's leadership. Coincidentally, (laughs) the power of purpose and and how purpose animates our careers. I got back on the train in Philadelphia. It was nine o'clock at night. It had been a long day. I texted my husband, leaving Philly, home soon. It was so regular. And and I I stood up to get um, my iPad out out of my bag. It was up on the luggage rack. And I noticed we were going fast. And I'd taken that train a lot. It usually pulls out of Philly pretty slowly. And I kind of got annoyed because I had to grip the luggage wrap. I started to lose my balance. And, and I kept trying to, you know, reach, reach into my bag. And I, I couldn't. And then it started shaking harder and harder. And I felt myself falling over. And I remember so clearly this flash of, of disbelief. Like, it, we can't be tipping. Trains don't tip. And then there was a realization that, in fact, we were tipping over and there were screams. I screamed. And that's my last memory for several days. That derailment was just just horrific. It really was. You know, it came out very quickly afterward that the train was going 106 miles an hour 
on a curve that was designed for a maximum of 50. There's no way that train wasn't going to crash. People died. Eight people died. Yeah. Eight people died. Many of them riding in the first car where I was. And I still see their faces. Uh. And, and I see their faces. And it, it just, my heart hurts for those families. When did you decide to write the book? Because I think that you, you took, you know, the first six months and then you've also, as you say, you live with pain all the time. I didn't say this at the beginning, but but I guess it's probably obvious here that I was quite seriously injured and was not expected to live. The, my trauma surgeon told my brother, who's a physician, that they needed to come quickly um, because I was likely not going to make it. And my family jumped on planes from all around the country, Washington State, Colorado, Texas, flew to Philadelphia. And I know at least one of my brothers packed a dark suit for my funeral. You know, we were so grateful I had lived, but you can only be grateful for overwhelming pain for so long. (laughs) And and I, I started trying to understand why on earth I felt this way. And I started to try to become a student of trauma. I read every trauma book, medical textbooks on pain, survivor stories. And I I just needed to connect with other people that had been there. And, And ultimately, I decided to write my book in hopes that putting out my story might help somebody else out there. Doesn't have to be a train wreck, right? Car crashes are, are tragically common, but it could be a, a diagnosis or maybe a child is sick or maybe a relationship has broken up. All of these setbacks that hit us, I think, force us to find new resilience muscles. <laughs> and, and, and I'm glad you talked about resilience because you had tremendous resilience. So let, let's go back a bit, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your injuries, because they were so extraordinary. And then then let's shift into how you got through. You talk about um, gratitude, grief, and grace and resilience. But talk a little bit about your injuries, because you're right. I, I think that you weren't expected to survive. I, I wasn't. And in fact, the National Transportation Safety Board has a scoring, an official scoring system they use to, you know, uh, in their reporting on disasters uh, to describe injuries. And I was by far the most seriously injured passenger who did not pass. Uh, I mentioned I was with a group of trauma surgeons last night, and one of them told me I was a unicorn. I was a trauma well, a unicorn. unicorn. <laughs> a trauma unicorn. <laughs> okay. okay. I hadn't thought about it that way. But, uh, um, yeah, I, so the train hit with such force, and, and the first car was just destroyed. In the pictures, it doesn't even really look like a train car. It's just a debris. It's a debris field. I I have no memory and I don't know who found me, unfortunately, but all of my internal organs in in my abdomen crashed up through my chest. So the the diaphragm, that thick leathery muscle that separates your your lungs and your chest cavity from your abdomen was, was ruptured. My stomach was up above my heart. My colon was in my armpit. Uh, My spleen was destroyed and bleeding. My bladder had ruptured. All of my intestines were lacerated, perforated, and in the wrong place. My lungs were collapsed. I couldn't breathe on my own. But the orthopedic injuries were just as severe. 
the whole left side of my chest was crushed. I broke essentially all my ribs very badly in many different places. These were not a couple clean breaks. And then my pelvis, I, I had what they call an open pelvic ring fracture. Some studies by itself, without any other injury, has a 50% mortality rate. The, the right side of my pelvis was not connected to the left side. It was literally broken in half. And the left side was also crushed. Something had penetrated, so the wound was very open and dirty, and I'd lost a lot of blood. Lastly, I, I broke uh, four vertebrae in my back, C7 and L234. But miraculously, I broke them in just such a way that it did not impinge on my spinal cord. And that was one of the earliest things we were just so grateful about that I was not paralyzed. We didn't know if I would really be able to walk again, but we knew I wasn't paralyzed, which, which was like kind of the early glimmer of hope that I was going to be okay. So can you talk a little bit about your team and also a little bit about how you dealt with the pain because it was so, so constant and so extreme. You know, something like this, when, when your life is completely turned upside down in, a, in an instant, nothing can prepare you for it. Absolutely nothing can prepare you for it. And the thing is that, you know, yes, the accident happened to me, but it, it did, just as you said, it happened to the whole family. And my, my husband, my sons, our longtime babysitter, my parents, my siblings. I'm fortunate to have three siblings. They're all doctors and their spouses are all doctors. So oh, wow. That's a lot. I, had, I had my own kind of uh, kitchen cabinet of, 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 of shadow medical team, if you will. You know, and I also had a really wonderful network of friends. And that's something I've come to appreciate even more after the accident. It's easier for us sometimes to focus on our jobs and focus on our families and not leave enough time to really invest in a, in a broader group of friendships. And that really helped me out a lot as well. So I, I can't say enough about my husband and my sons. I mean, from an agonizing nine hour search through the night on the night of the accident to finally find me barely alive in an ICU as an unidentified Jane Doe. It's a Jane Doe, yeah. Yeah, my my husband um, went through his own incredibly traumatic experience, as did my sons. My sons knew my husband was looking for me that night. They knew they were watching the news. They were seeing the reports of fatalities, and all they knew was that dad couldn't find me. And so they they went through a really harrowing experience as well. I was in such bad shape. I was on a ventilator. I, I couldn't speak or breathe on my own. I was immobilized. My sons weren't allowed to visit me for a couple of weeks in the hospital. I, I, I wasn't happy about that at the beginning, but I couldn't speak anyway. It was blink once for yes, blink twice for no <laughs> type of thing. And I now realize that probably was the right decision because I wouldn't have wanted their last image of me that. It, it, it took me a while to realize that, that that was the right call to protect the kids. So anyway, it, it does, you know, it, it having the responsibility of being a mom and knowing how much my boys did need me. They were eight, 12 and 15 at the time. Honestly, when the pain got bad and as month and month wore on, 
you know, in the beginning, I thought, I'll be back in six, eight weeks, right? Bones heal, you wear a cast for six weeks. I was wildly unrealistic. You know, six months on when I'm still on massive doses of fentanyl, oxycontin, oxycodone, I have a list of surgeries still coming up. It was my sons that got me out of bed. You had you had that personal purpose. I did. I did. I didn't want them to come home from school and see their mom still in her bathrobe, still in her bed, unshowered. I thought, no, I, that's not who I want them to see. I, I need them to have confidence that I am going to be okay. I don't want them to worry about me. And I would, it would be 259 and I might not get out of my bathtub, but I was going to be up. <laughs> there, there you go. There, there you go. Not <laughs> sure. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about resilience. Obviously you learned a lot. And so what did you learn about resilience going through? And it, it wasn't just 2015 to 2016. I mean, it's ongoing that you've now applied also to work and to life? Because I think that you learned some amazing lessons there. I absolutely did. And, and I'll point out two of them. I think the biggest one is striking that balance between optimism and realism. I was unrealistically optimistic. We were just so grateful I had survived. And even as depression and, and PTSD set in for a while, I was so impatient. I knew I was going to get better. Why was this happening? And I was calling my boss every six weeks telling him, you know, just another month I would be back at work. <laughs> and I set myself up for failure because my self-imposed deadlines would come and go. And everybody around me knew I was crazy, <laughs> but nobody wanted to dash my hopes, right? You know, nobody wanted to tell me like, girl, this is going to be years. This is not going to be weeks. <laughs> and and so. It, that made it all the harder for me because then, you know, I, I, I kept thinking I would be better by the fall. I would be better by Halloween. I would be better by Thanksgiving. And I wasn't. And, and so I needed a bigger dose of realism. I needed to understand better the extent of my injuries, how long it would take to wean off the opioids, how long it would take to recover from some of the reconstructive surgeries I had to do. And it was only when I really, in a way, took my foot off the gas and stopped marking time on the calendar and came to a kind of acceptance that I was not in control of the time frame. I could work as hard as I wanted at physical therapy. I could religiously take my medications. But ultimately, I wasn't going to be able to control this. I couldn't just work harder and make it go faster. And that level of acceptance, I think, is one thing that really did help me move on. And I'll tell you a quick story. I read it and it just resonated with me so strongly. There's a story about Admiral Jim Stocktail, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, received the Congressional Medal of Honor. He's an incredible man. And he was asked, he was a prisoner of war for seven years, how did you make it through? And he said, I never doubted that we were going to get out. I never doubted it, and I knew that it was going to be the defining, this experience would be the defining event of my life. And then he was asked, well, who didn't make it out? Like, who, who were the guys that just, that just couldn't? And he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. He said, they were the ones that said, we'll be out by Christmas, we'll be out by Easter, we'll be out by summer, and they died of a broken heart. 
And it's that balance. He said, I had to come to accept. I knew I was going to get out of there, but I also knew it wasn't going to be for a long time and, and that he couldn't control the time frame. And I just thought, wow, that was exactly me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> so that, 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 you know, when, when something goes wrong, yes, we got to stay positive. Yes, things will get better. But, you know, that dose of realism is important too for real resilience and really moving forward. And then the other thing I would say is being open to trying new things. You know, when you're at the end of your rope, you have to get a little creative. And, and all of the tools that I had tried before were not open to me. I couldn't just go out and go for a long walk. I was in a wheelchair. <laughs> I couldn't, you know, do a lot of the things I used to do. I could, I'd love to travel. That wasn't an option. I couldn't even drive myself for well over a year. And I had always dismissed things like breathing and meditation. I was I was wrong, of course, but very snobbish about it and, and was like, oh, give me a break. That, you know, that stuff's for people that don't really believe in science. And I was so wrong. You know, when I was really at the end of my rope and nothing else was working, a friend, you know, advised me. She said, I know somebody who does therapeutic yoga. Just give it a try. And it was so gentle. My body was very broken. But taking control over my breath, forcing myself to learn to meditate, being patient, gave me back some sense of agency, some sense of control. I'm curious about, you've gone through this incredible trauma and accident, and then all of a sudden, Oregon shows up. <laughs> and of course, Ken Frazier's an amazing leader. But talk about that, because I think it's important for people listening who have maybe been downsized and because there's a lot and a lot of people want to go into ESG and they really want to have an impact at scale. How did Organon show up? And then what are you doing there? Because I would be remiss if we didn't talk about that. You know, I, after I got off my kick of calling my boss every six weeks saying I was coming back and, you know, finally at one point I gave up and said, you know, I have no idea when I'm going to be back. <laughs> so I go back to Mark part time after almost two and a half years it was it was tough, but I really credit the company. I, you know, companies have a culture, but but they also have character, and and it's really shaped by their leaders. And the fact that I could go back after almost two and a half years into a senior role that they had held open for me through rotational assignments and other creative ways, and and my teammates stepped up and filled in, not just for a couple of weeks, for a couple of years. years. Yeah. I mean, I, I really credit, I will be forever grateful for the company for giving me that honor back into the professional world and being patient with me and giving me the time I needed. And it was about two years after I had gone back when, as a strategic move, um, Merck decided that its women's health portfolio and some of its other products would be more valuable as a standalone company. And so they spun out those those products to create a brand new, completely independent, publicly traded company dedicated to women's health. And I walked in to the leader of that project, who's now the CEO at Organon, Kevin Ali, and I walked into Ken Frazier's office, the CEO of Merck, and I said, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. Oh, that's great. And the great thing about a spinoff is that 
it's like we're a startup at scale. <laughs> we're, especially in our function, you know, engaging with policymakers, deciding on our ESG strategy, deciding on our goals around sustainability. It's a blank sheet of paper, but with incredible resources behind it. We sell products into 140 markets. We've got 9,500 employees around the world. Uh, we've got about a six, six and a half billion dollar market cap. We can really have an impact. And that's what really excites me. That's what really excites me. It's why I raised my hand and said, if I can be helpful, I want to be part of it. So you were at the beginning of a purpose at the center healthcare company. Now you have gone through, you're back at work now. You've learned in just incredible good and bad and, and everything in between from your trauma. How did you apply that to Oregon? Any of the learnings? I work for a healthcare company and I believe in what we do and I especially believe in our in our function in advancing sustainability, supporting access to medicines for folks that need it. And that the private sector can really play a role in that. That is what animates me. And I've promised myself the day I don't feel like I'm having that kind of impact, I'm gone. You know, I'd love to go work for a nonprofit. I'd love to go lead some kind of initiative. I don't need to stay in the corporate world if I don't feel like it can be impactful. And so in a way, I'm more purpose focused because I made a very intentional, deliberate decision about why I was going to go back to work. And I will not be true to myself and I will not be true to the promises I made about what I would do if I survived, if I did anything but that. And I, I hope that one other thing I guess I'll say is different. I'm very open about my journey, my struggles. And that's one way in which I feel like I'm a little bit of a different leader now. You know, leaders, sometimes you need to feel like you're strong and you don't, you can't show vulnerability, right? You need to have the answers. And I think, you know what, there's so much stigma around mental health. I report to the CEO, if I can't be honest and say I went through a period of major depression after getting hit by a train, right. then who on else, who can, right. who can? Right. And we all have something, right? We all have things we struggle with. So I think I'm a more open, empathetic leader as a result of the experience, or at least I try to be. And I'm just curious, and, and I don't bring God into my podcast, but I will in this case. You know, did, you know, people say, did God have a reason that you were on that train? Did God have a reason? But I'm almost wondering, I want to lean it into the purpose of Organon, because, you know, you stepped into two CEOs' offices and said, you want to have this role. Was there any portion of divine intervention that kind of helped guide you towards this new direction? I don't think so. I don't like thinking that, oh, God had a purpose in saving me, because I believe those other people that passed deserve to be saved just as much as I did. Their lives were just as valuable. So the way I think about it is that it was an act of grace. And, and grace is defined as an undeserved, unmerited gift. And I thought, okay, I can't accept that this was the plan that I live and somebody else doesn't. But I can accept a gift. 
I didn't do anything to deserve it, but I received it. And so it's my responsibility what I do with that gift. I was given the gift of a second chance to continue living, to continue being a mom to my sons. So it's on me. It's on me to do something with that gift that is worthy of it. So I'm just curious because people are who are just invested in purpose at all levels of their journey are listening to this. Tell me, how are you a different purpose-driven leader now? I ask myself far more often than I did before, am I doing the right thing with this gift I've been given? Am I doing the right thing with the time that I've been given? Am I being the best mom? the best wife, the best leader in healthcare. And we all have bad days, right? But I don't make the compromises that I used to in terms of my time. I am much more deliberate about protecting time with my family, for example. I'm much more outspoken about things at work that I I don't think it's worth our time. Mm. I'm not doing it. So just to be clear, I would love you to talk a little bit. What are your goals for Organon right now in terms of women's health? Because and I also love the fact that you've got nine out of thirteen of your board members are women, so that's really cool. Isn't that fantastic? It's very cool. We have a fantastic yeah. board of, of of really diverse, accomplished people, nine of whom happen to be women, which is awesome. <laughs> so, you know, my goals in in the public policy, communications, and sustainability space are really that we live our purpose. So so what we say at Organon is her promise, the promise of women, the potential of young women. That is our purpose, is, is to help them fulfill their promise. And that includes things like advancing access to contraception, Every single woman should have the right, the ability to decide if she's ready to have a child. And now more than ever, access to really reliable contraception is critical to that. That really excites me. We make a number of fertility products. And my children are so important to me to think of a couple wanting to have a child and needing support for science you know, to, to have that baby they dream of, it's just fantastic. It, it really makes me feel like this is important. So those kinds of stories from our patients, um, from, from the people that we serve, really mean a lot. I, I do believe that we change lives. Oh, that, that, that's amazing. It's, it's so extraordinary to, to have you bookended with these two amazing companies. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about servant leadership and Ken Frazier, and, you know, he was by your side, it seemed. I mean, he was very concerned. He visited you. He he inspired you to write the book. Why is a servant leader so important today for business and especially purposeful business? It's hard to overstate the importance of leadership. It really is having a leader that you just respect you know, uh, the the heck out of. And and none of us are perfect, right? But having a leader that you know has such a strong moral compass and is willing to say and do hard things 
if they are the right things to say and to do is incredibly inspiring. It inspires everybody else to be better, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And inspires all of us to want to be better. And I just remember one time I, I had gone into work, they'd sent a car so that I could come in and say hello to people and visit. Several months after the accident, I was still in a wheelchair and I wasn't feeling very well. And I was sitting at a conference table in the dark with my head on the table thinking, oh, why did I do this? Like, I'm not up to this. And the door opened and Ken Frazier walks in, the CEO of the company. He had heard that I was there to visit, but that I might be leaving. And he came and he sat down beside me. And I immediately started going into, oh, I'm sorry, I'm better. I'm going to be back at work by the fall. You know, I was nervous about my position. And, and he had such a kind way of just shutting that down. <laughs> and he, he took my hand. And it's not like we were best friends, which is why it's so extraordinary. You know, he took my hand. He said, Geraldine, I know that you believe. Would it be okay if we just prayed? And he just sat with me in that conference room. And we bowed our heads. And he said a prayer. And it was, I mean, something like that never leaves you. That extraordinary human kindness. One of the most powerful CEOs in America for, you know, just one of my staff members um, was really extraordinary. I'm going to ask you two audience questions. One for purpose-driven leaders. So what's your advice in today's world, ESG has kind of been, it's been, you know, kind of thrown all around. It's in turmoil. But so what's your advice for leaders, C-suite, regarding how they either find their purpose or advance their purpose? My advice, and, and you know, with all of the kind of political controversy around ESG, and, and I wrote a column on this, I'm not so negative on it. I see it as a kind of growing pains and maturation of the field. You know, if you're, if ESG is mainstream, it's prime time. And so guess what? You're going to get some political blowback like everything else in America. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> if it's worthwhile, sure. Okay. It's precisely because it has become so important that we're having some of these conversations. But my advice to leaders, it has got to be authentic. There is nothing more off-putting than a purpose statement that is just a bunch of words on the page and that people parrot at the end of meetings or something like that. It's got to be authentic. So find your connection with that purpose. Find your, make sure you actually genuinely believe it. Because if you don't, it's going to be really obvious to everybody. You, it, no, none of us are that good at faking it. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, there, yeah. We always say it, it can't be laminated. It has to be lived. <laughs> I love that. So now how about trauma? What are, I mean, you wrote the book, you went through probably one of the few people who survived the level of trauma you had, but what's a couple adv- pieces of wisdom beyond buy the book, read the book. There's a lot in the book. We love the book. Uh, just a couple things you want to leave with our listeners and maybe they know so they've been through trauma or a big accident or maybe they know somebody in their family or a friend. I, I read a quote in a book by a, a theologian that really has struck with me and I try to remind myself of it every now and then. We talked about the value of being a friend of time. When love works slowly. God works slowly sometimes. You've got to learn to be a friend of time. 
during my long recovery, when I was so impatient for things to get better, I gradually stepped, you know, learned to step back and appreciated that this time was actually special. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was filled with pain and unpleasantness. But there were good things. I, I worked since my kids were born. And I was there every afternoon when they walked in from school. Right there on the first floor because I couldn't go upstairs. <laughs> I was right there. And it hit me one day in the face that had never happened before. You know, I see them at dinner when their memories of school were four hours old and they didn't want to talk about it anymore. And, you know, they were young enough. Sometimes they'd climb up in bed with me and we'd watch a movie in the middle of the afternoon. And it, it took me a while to say, you know what? This is not all bad. <laughs> and, and finding those things that, that, that make you smile, that make you think differently, that make you learn a new skill like yoga and meditation for me, becoming a friend of time and deliberately trying to find the good in the situation is, I think, the key to ultimately getting past it. Ah. That, that's that's a tremendous tremendous comment and insight, and I'm glad that you got to be a friend with time because throughout the book you can see you are very impatient. Um, it's, it's part of what drives you to be so extraordinary, and also your your amazingly positive attitude. I always like to leave the last words to my guest. So, is there anything that you would like to add related to purpose, work, trauma, your family, God? I would just thank folks. For listening, you're, you're listening to this podcast because presumably you believe in the power of purpose and the more of us that are out there <laughs> thinking positively and thinking deliberately and intentionally about how we're spending our time, the better, the better off we're all going to be. So thank you. Oh, that's perfect. So thank you, Geraldine Ritter. I am so honored to have met you, someone who I read about and I felt for and loved work from others. And now I have a new favorite in Oregon. Thank you. Just thank you so much. I'm so glad that you are in the role that you are at Oregon and that you've also written this book. So on behalf of Purpose 360, I want to thank you for being a fabulous guest. And we're going to have you back soon. I can't wait. I can't wait. This podcast was brought to you by some amazing people, and I'd love to thank them. Anne Hundertmark and Kristen Kenny at Carol Cone on Purpose. Pete Wright and Andy Nelson, our crack production team at True Story FM, and you, our listener. You know, we love hearing from you, so please give us feedback. Let us know names of people you'd like to hear on a future episode. How about some new questions to ask? And also, please rate and rank us because we really want to be as high as possible as one of the top business podcasts available so that we can continue exploring together the importance and the activation of authentic purpose. We all know every company, every brand, every not-for-profit must define their purpose, refine it, and activate it and evolve it over time so it has the greatest impact on business, growth, and society. And by listening to these episodes and sharing them with your colleagues and talking about them, 
I want to inspire you to have an amazing answer to this question. What is the power of your purpose? Thanks so much for listening. 